Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Okay, so we've been looking at the book of Ephesians for a few months now. And, um, okay, first question. What would your guess be as to possibly the main theme of the book of Ephesians? What do you think Paul's biggest aim is that he wants the Ephesians to get, if you were to guess? Any guesses? Identity. Identity. I like that suggestion. Anything else? Identity. Jesse helped me to... I found Jesse's um, description last week really helpful, like flying at the right level. Yes. Seeing a big picture of stuff. Yeah, and being sort of in the heavenly realms rather than down here. Love it. That's great. Yeah, that's a good one. Any other suggestions? The big aim of Ephesians. Come on, don't be shy. Good family. One more. Jared. I was going to say identity of Christ. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, I think uh, it's an interesting question because actually it's not totally clear. So that's probably why you're slightly hesitant. You're like, I don't know. It's an amazing book, but I'm not totally clear on one really clear ob- objective. However, I am convinced personally that the biggest aim of the book of Ephesians, why is Paul writing this book to these Ephesian urbanites 2,000 years ago? Perhaps the biggest aim is actually unity. Unity. The word unity appears many times in the book of Ephesians, and it's the only time in the entire Bible, or certainly the entire entire New Testament, where the word unity appears. It's always in Ephesians. It's fascinating. And, um, I mean, to state the obvious, we are all, as humans, intensely relational beings, right? We We are damaged by relationships, and we're healed through relationships. We are... Uh, defined in many ways by relationships and we are we're destined for a life whether we like it or not where relationships are incredibly incredibly important why do you think relationships are so important in life why do you think that comment is true that we are intensely relational because God is relational. Oh, George! Straight to the bullseye. Did you see my notes? No, I haven't got any. Well done. George, I mean, there's lots of reasons that we could give, but what this man has just said is absolutely profound and true. Think about this. The Christian God, I don't know how much you know about the Christian God, but one of the most distinctive things about him, which I love, which I forget, is he is one, and yet what else do we know about God? He's three persons. He's a community. God, the Christian God, is a family. Which, 
I find kind of mind-boggling. And, I mean, that, that one truth, that the Christian God is a trinity God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, yet three persons, all equally divine, and therefore, as humans made in the image of God, whether you like it or not, you can have all the money in the world, you can all have the power in the world, you can have all the success in the world, but if relationally things are not healthy, both vertically, between you and your creator, and horizontally, between the world around you, I promise you, ultimately your soul will not be as it's intended to be. And even more than that, it's not just about your happiness, although it is, I think the reason that Paul is so wanting this, this church in this metropolis that was Ephesus to understand unity despite diversity is because Christians cannot with legitimacy talk about knowing a Trinitarian community God if their relationships are kind of broken. And here's the real honest truth. I have spoken to more Christians in the last year and a half since moving to the Bay who have been hurt, subtly often, but genuinely, by relationships within the church community than I have in all of my life. And I don't entirely know why, and I'm not going to pick you out, but I say that to make a comment that this thing that Paul was like really going for, like, guys, we, we can't just talk about me and Jesus, although that's amazing. We have to talk about we and Jesus. We have to find this path. And the fact is, is that unity and relational closeness is incredibly difficult. In fact, in our natural state outside of Christ, our natural propensity now is to division. I mean, just have kids and you can testify. Just get married and you can testify. Just try and be with your parents for more than a while and you test, you know, just try and do anything relational, right? And you're like, oh yeah, actually, I love people, but they're really hard, right? Amen? It's true. And so we are in this incredibly profound tension, all of us, of like, oh my gosh, I need relationship. I mean, if COVID has, not, has taught me one thing, it is the preciousness of seeing your eyeballs being physically close to you, there is no substitute, right, for just relational closeness. And yet, on the other hand, there is this, there is this tension that it feels like, and maybe it's just me, but actually it's not me, it's, it's what the Bible says. Partly because of me, partly because of you, there is always this sort of, almost like knife edge, <laughs> where you think, oh, things could go wrong so easily, Right? So, so we, we have a, a tension that we see in our life in San Francisco, in LA, wherever you live, that is both really real and ancient. It's because of sin. And Paul here is like, I'm not going to like, let you off the hook, O church in Ephesus, O sanctuary in the bay. You are hardwired for a relationship because of your God. And it is essential that this city... We don't, they don't need to see a flash event. They don't need to see a flash website. They don't need to see super organized people, although those things are good. They're good. I believe what this city most needs to see is a community of incredibly different people, totally different, who somehow love each other and can argue and resolve. 
can can have depth of relationship. I was a dreadlocked, nose-ring, pot-smoking atheist at university, believe it or not. I get saved, and the first guy who starts discipling me is like an architect in his 60s, who's super neat, super tidy, super organized, and he came to my smelly student university accommodation every week and poured his life into me and started to father me. And my friends were like, this is crazy. This is so strange. He's so different to you. But that did something to me that Paul is wanting to see in every church, that just as the Trinity is different and yet unified, we, we, we mustn't pretend we're all the same. Okay, that's lunacy. You are not the same. We are different. Just as the Trinity, persons are different. But we are of equal value, equal dignity, and we must learn to be equally unified. So that's what Paul's getting at. And his technique so far as a true father, have you noticed what he's been doing in the first two chapters? He's just, I mean, Paul is an enthusiast. He's an intellectual giant. He raises people from the dead, clever and incredibly anointed by God. But he's also incredibly encouraging. And so far in this book, he's just been lavishing these uh, Ephesians uh, Christians with an understanding of how, how blessed they are. Their identity. He's like, this is who you are. And uh, if you've got kids, you'll know that kids need to be... Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> they need to be secure, right, if they're not going to be uh, rivals to each other. Amen. I mean, I think you guys have got the biggest family so far. You're winners. So this is true, right, Doug? You, your kids need to know dad and mum love me and I'm secure and I'm important if I'm not going to try and, if I'm not going to have disunity with my siblings. And Paul's been doing that. He's been saying, hey, you're holy. You're blessed. You're redeemed. You're alive. He's just lavishing these spiritual children with good stuff. But today, today's fascinating because he starts to change his tack. All discipleship involves both encouragement and challenge. And today, Paul moves into a bit of a challenging posture, in love still, so that these Ephesian Christians can be those who are genuinely unified with those who are very, very different to them. Who wants to read from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11? 2 verse 11. Therefore, remember those formerly who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who all call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Keep going till verse 13. Remember that, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of, of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. One more. But now in Christ, Jesus, you who once were far away, have been, have been brought nearby to the blood of Christ. Very good. So do you see, do you notice what he did there? Paul is wanting to bring deep unity into this church. It's not that the church was necessarily hugely divided. But we don't need to think that. But what he's primarily at this point wanting to see is that the Gentile Christians were close and intimate and unified with the Jewish Christians. 
that seems to be the main aim. And if you have one like takeaway of how he is wanting to achieve that today, it is that unity requires humility. Paul is wanting to speak. You've got to just sort of turn on your little imagination machines just for a moment. What do we know about the city of Ephesus where he's writing? Any facts about Ephesus? Shout them out. It was on the water, absolutely. Trading city. Yeah, a trading city, very good. Large community, very good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great start. Any other thoughts about what do we know about Ephesus? The people who would have been hearing this. Well, they were very religious. They found, uh, one of the biggest temples. Yes. Absolutely. Very good. Anything else? It was a trading city, right? So there were yeah. a lot of different people in and out yeah. from different places. Right. So it was a trading city. It was um, after Rome and Athens. It was the third most important city in the whole of the empire. It was the premier city for the whole of Asia. So honestly, without stretching it, it's a little bit of an SF. It's a little bit of a San Francisco. Right up there. It was about 250,000 people, which at that time was very, very large and was obviously dominated by both Greek culture and Roman culture. So the main culture that's dominating the people that he's writing to is not originally Jewish. When Paul went there, we know he actually first went to the Jewish synagogue. That's where he starts, as was his pattern. But we, re- we realize that the church quickly then became not just Jewish converts, but non-Jewish converts, Gentile converts as well, which is all great, but when you have diversity, is that an easy thing to manage when you get up close and personal? No. I mean, are we living, I mean, to me, as a British person coming here, watching the debate just a few days ago, talking to many of you and friends, it feels like this country has got a lot of diversity of opinions about a lot of things, which isn't bad. It's good in many ways. But how we actually live with meaningful unity despite diversity politically or ethnically or culturally is really hard, right? With people who, you know, they, their, their views jar with you. And, and rather than isolating, Paul is wanting them to come together. And so this is what he does. He lasers in after this kind of wonderful opening section of just encouragement. Oh, you're so blessed. He now focuses on those in the church who were non-Jewish Christians, the Gentile converts. And the key phrase he says here, he says, remember, so in the Christian life, some things you need to forget, right? And some things you need to remember. We often tend to forget the wrong things and we, re- and we often re- remember the wrong things. And Paul's saying, you need to remember something. And as he's saying this, picture in your mind, the people he's speaking to were high, likely very intelligent, cosmopolitan, urbanites, loving the city they're from, they're Greek in their culture, and, let's, and, and, and you know, Greek culture has fairly influenced this world, let's just say. There's a pride in that culture. They're also Roman citizens, and they're proud in that as well, and they're living in Ephesus, one of the most important cities in the world. 
And so it's very interesting how Paul says to these very powerful Christians, humanly, he says, remember that formerly you who are non-Jews, Gentiles, by birth, and called the uncircumcised, which was like, that was like a, 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 a derogatory term. The Jews called them the uncircumcised. By those who called themselves the circumcision, that's the Jews, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. And that phrase, separate from Christ, is his headline, the main thing he's wanting them to understand. That you weren't always close to God. You weren't always close to God. And then what he does is, in five different ways, straight away, he unpacks this separateness from God that they used to have. Number one, he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Number one, excluded from citizenship in Israel. Israel, in summary, was a people, ultimately their great father was Abraham, who were chosen out of the world to have God's particular affection, particular attention, particular love. Yes, so that through them, the rest of the world would see this God and his blessing on them. But they were, first of all, a people who God's particular promises and love and joy was over. And the first thing he's saying to them is, uh, okay, proud urbanites, if you're going to ever be unified with these Jewish Christians who you feel so different to, okay, first thing is you need to know that you were once excluded. You were excluded, you were alienated. Let's be really provocative. You were somewhat rejected. You weren't in the special crew for the first 1,500 years. When God was starting to redeem this world, his particular affection at that point was on a culturally uh, definable ethnic group that you were not part of. So, how does that make you feel? Uh, you, you may, I'm sure, I don't know, I would imagine most people here are ethnically Gentile. Would anyone here be ethnically or culturally a Jew? I know Minette would be. Anyone here? Okay. Well, you're in. You were in. So we were, Paul's trying to say to potentially some sort of proud urbanites, you weren't in the in crew, number one. You were excluded. How does it feel to be excluded in, in, in any way? Just shout out. What does it feel like to feel excluded? Lonely. Lonely. Absolutely. Not loved. Yeah, absolutely. Not loved. Okay. Yeah. What other words? Alienated or excluded or rejected? Paul's wanting to have a bit of an impact on them. Second class. Second class. Inadequate. Inadequate. Yeah. Absolutely. And without getting into critical theory right now and that whole thing, John Stott, the great commentator, British commentator, actually says that Paul here, critical theory, if you, if you know something about it, is very popularly talked about at the moment. And uh, I certainly don't believe it's the full picture of the gospel, but there's an essence of what it's getting at in terms of power differentiation. But Paul's saying, if you weren't a Jew, 
for fifteen hundred years, you were you were not in the in the in the people who had ultimate access to God. You were excluded and alienated. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. He's saying you needed. He's saying to these very proud people, you needed a small country a long way away from you. You needed them. They were important to you. You didn't know it, but God's plan was that through them you were actually going to hear about the reality of God. But at that point, you were excluded. Number two, he then says, you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Let me explain that. It's a little bit of an uh, interesting concept. You were, foreigners to the, uh, you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. The central thing that marked out the uh, Jewish people in many ways, or one of the key things, was that, was that they had promises. They just had these promises. They didn't deserve them. They weren't any better than other people. But God said, I want to promise you blessing and a land and, and, and a name and the very presence of God. Now, when you look through the Old Testament, these promises were like rocket fuel to their hearts. When you look at the heroes of the Old Testament, the big idea is that the promises of God were what kept them going. When they were waiting, when they were suffering, when life was difficult, when they were confused, when they were wandering in the desert, the plan was that the, the, the promises of God, they were very alive to, let me put it that way. And Paul is saying, before you became a Christian, you were like strangers or numb emotionally to the promises of God. Many Christians in this country who go to church and they think by going to a building and saying certain words that makes them a Christian. And they're strangers to the promise. There's no life. There's no like joy. There's no like, woo, like we have from Brianna this morning. There's joy. I know God again. They're just strangers to the promises. I don't believe that that's really true. I mean, I do in my head with my lips, but I'm like a stranger to the promise. So you could say they were number one excluded, saying you were excluded, and number two, you were numb. Now, before I became a Christian, I couldn't ever really cry. I remember my sister, who I was very close to, almost died in hospital, and I drove through the night to get there, and I vividly remember thinking, something is wrong with me. I'm like numb. I'm like deep freeze. Since becoming a Christian 22 years ago, <laughs> I occasionally cry now. Let's just say. I'm becoming a lot, the, the, the promises are not, I'm not a stranger to them, right? Amen? They're friends. So he's saying, this is who you were. Number two, you, you were excluded. You were numb. And then he says this terrifying next phrase. What does it mean to be separate from Christ? You're excluded. You're numb to the promises. And then he says, you're without hope. Man, let that just sink in. Feel the weight of that. I mean, can I be really honest? Like, one of the reasons that Christians often historically get killed is because saying to this world, without Jesus, you have no hope. That is incredibly offensive. Incredibly offensive. You know, we want to blur it, right? We want to be friends. Yeah, well, we can blur it. It's actually incredibly unfair and cruel to... When we, when, we, when we share what is the gospel, well, part of the gospel is without being close to Christ, you, you have no hope. You have no hope. And actually, when you think about this world and you just live sorrow and pain and 
despair are actually where humans will go. That's why all the great poets, so many of the great artists, are melancholic. That's why we love it. That's why the news is 99% sad stuff. Because there's something in humans that knows, yeah, that it is beautiful, Tom, but it's also kind of screwed up. And when I dig into my family, and I dig into my life, and I dig into my work, and I dig into my ma there's so much pain, right? That is just, that's the, hu the, the universal human condition right now. And the honest truth is, without being too bleak, the gospel says that without Christ, we are all dying. I mean, I just, you know, I drive to McDonald's to get Poppy a burger last night. I see three different people just splayed out on the, on the, on the sidewalks just on that short two-minute journey, five-minute journey, whatever it is. I'm just like, each one of them is someone's child. That's like Poppy or Lily or Daisy. I just, we live in a world without hope. And he's saying, even if you're a, an intelligent urbanite, with, before you had Christ, you were actually, I mean, be real, you're, there's a hell, there's a judgment. Watch out, Tyler. It's coming. I, and I, and I, can I just say this? And I really mean this. Like, if you're a Christian here today, your life is not your own anymore. And as a church, we are not here just to encourage each other. We are not here just, as part of the deal, to build each other up. But there is a seriousness, isn't there, about the gospel that I just feel like a fear of God. Like, man, this is not a joke. Like, if we believe this, truth. <laughs> like, seriously. Like... We need to just have this as an ingredient in our lives. And he, he's appealing to them like, you, you should really get over those differences, friends. Because you were without hope. Even if you look shiny and you're intelligent and you were Greek and Roman and everything else, you were once without hope. But he just keeps going for it. Paul is in, you know, he's in his special place right now. And then he says, and you are without God. You're without hope and without God. And clearly he doesn't mean that God wasn't physically with you because God is everywhere, right? But what he's saying is, is that the particular presence of God, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with me. Without Christ, when you're separate from Christ, when I was an atheist, I could not say that God was with me in that particular way that he, he, he comes when we, when we say, Jesus, I need you. Well, without God... And then he finally says, fifthly, you are in the world. And although God loves this world, when Paul tends to use the word world, or even in the Gospels, it's normally a negative. Loves the world, wants to redeem the world, but when he's talking about being in the world in this context, he's a bit like saying you're like on the Titanic, and you're right in one of those tiny little cabins right at the bottom, which is locked. And, and you're... you're you're connected to something that is under the wrath of God. You're connected with something that is in a bad, bad place. You're trapped in something. You're connected, not primarily at Christ, but you're connected with the world. So let me just pause then and just let me hear from you for a moment. With those five descriptions of what it was to be separate from Christ, you were excluded, you were numb, you were doomed, you were alone, and you were trapped. What, first of all, before we get to the good news, how does that make you feel?
just imagine Paul had just written that lovely letter to you, personally. <laughs> hey, Tyler. Hope work's going all right. By the way, you need to remember something. It's profound that he wrote this. How does that, how does that land on your soul? Humbly. Yeah. Humbly? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Futility? Not to downplay our, our current challenges, but it puts things into perspective a little bit. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's good, Tim. Yeah. So Paul is wanting to humble them. He recognizes that they're never going to have unity if they're different. Unless there is this, this humbling that is part of the Christian life. However, he then in verse 13, after kind of stripping them down... In the final verse of today, he does soothe them as a good father or mother does with their children. Even when you're speaking words that are deliberately, they're somewhat weighty, aren't they? He then says this, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now this is... When you really, when this sinks in, the idea that Christians believe that Jesus Christ was fully God, a third member of the Trinity, Son of God, stepped down and hung on a cross, fully bearing the appropriate righteous judgment of God for Tom Shaw, for everything I have done, for everything I will think, say, or do, or not do that I should do today, or even will do. The idea... That the, that the Son of God, that Jesus himself willingly chose to come close even to the extent of shedding blood for me and you is, I know it sounds gory, but it's glorious. It's incredible. It's this idea of the sacrificial element. You know, if you see, if the Queen of England was to hurt herself, it's one thing, but if she was to shed blood, it's another thing, right? There's, it speaks of the significance of the cost, of the pain. And, and Paul is wanting to say to them, friends, listen, you live in this amazing place and God's probably given you tremendous privilege and power. And that's a good thing. But today, if you're ever going to be unified, there is an appropriate, sober assessment. Something you must remember. You must remember these things of where you come from of where you come from and how God, Jesus Christ, has come and brought you near. And so what does it mean to be brought near? Wow. It means all the opposites of the negatives that we just read. So you can do the math yourself. If you were once excluded, you were once... And if you've ever felt rejected, by the way, I, I certainly grew up feeling rejected in my teenage years. Uh, the idea of now you are included... You are now included both in the Trinitarian community of God. You're, you're connected with God. But you're, not now, you're now also included in the church of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing. You're included where you were once excluded. 
You are now no longer a foreigner to the promises, but the promises of God are something that will bring joy and energy and power to your hearts. Where you were despairing, you now have hope. Where you were once without God, where he was once not your shepherd, even though you walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he is now your shepherd. And once where you were just in the world, and that was your, in a sense, ultimate home, of course, we're still living in this world. And the Bible tells us that God loves this world, is going to make it new and renew it. And we're going to be physical as well as spiritual for eternity. Hallelujah. New heavens and new earth brought together. In a sense now, our, spirit, our spiritual elements are now connected in the heavenly realm with Jesus. So, man, how do, you, how do you do justice to Paul? I don't know. It's a very daunting prospect. He's such, a, such an Everest when it comes to these massive concepts. But the, the basic idea is that it's meant to bring tremendous unity despite diversity. Let me finish with one true story that I love. Anyone here know of uh, a man called Chuck Colson? Chuck Colson? Yeah. Chuck Colson was a politician, I think, in the Nixon era. Is that right? Yeah. And he unfortunately made some bad decisions, got put into prison. But I believe in prison, he came to faith. He certainly came to faith or came back to God. And the rest of his life has been devoted to working in the prisons, discipling men who often don't know Jesus. And there was an amazing true story of one time when he was, uh, he was gathering some very uh, different men. Okay, very, very different. Even more different than perhaps we've been reading about today. He said, in the early 1960s, Tommy Tarrant's, one of the guys who he knew was obsessed by hatred of blacks, Jews, and communists. He became an extremist. He was expelled from college and he went underground. A crack marksman and explosives expert, Tommy became a coldly efficient terrorist, joining the White Knights, which was the most violent wing of the Ku Klux Klan. However, trapped by the FBI while attempting to bomb a Jewish businessman's home, Tommy and a friend were caught in a gun battle. His friend was killed and Tommy's bullet-riddled body was rushed to the hospital where the doctors gave him little chance to survive. Miraculously, he recovered and was later tried and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Prison, in Tommy's words, was like living in a sewer. After a few months, he escaped and again there was a gunfight which left Tommy's accomplice dead. He was brought back to prison and this time, he was put in a solitary confinement cell. But there, his reading progressed from the extremist stuff to philosophy and to the gospel. Guards and inmates alike soon noticed a change in Tommy. The intensity of his hatred was redirected to a passionate hungering for God. Tommy became a model prisoner and soon a leader among the inmates. Then one day, there came an unusual phone call. Chuck, you won't believe this one. Fred Rhodes burst into my office, waving a piece of paper covered with notes. Billy Graham wants you to talk to a new Christian and give him a little coaching, a bit of discipleship. Oh, we can do that, said Chuck Colson. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that this new convert is Eldridge Cleaver, 
one-time bomb-throwing Black Panther. That's who. In late 1975, Eldridge Cleaver, a fugitive for eight years, voluntarily returned to the United States. He surrendered himself to stand trial for his role in a 1968 Oakland shootout with police. Sketchy press reports indicated that Cleaver had experienced a conversion as well in an Oakland, California jail. I had written to Cleaver an encouraging note but had had no answer. So we set up the meeting with Billy Graham at Fellowship House for a Saturday night. A dinner with 11 members of our inmate class was also planned for the Saturday. Since Cleaver had spent eight years in prison, Fred and I agreed it would be good for the inmates and Cleaver to, to eat together. But naively, I never once thought to, I never gave a thought to Tommy Tarrant, the one-time Klansman terrorist, who had so violently hated Cleaver and everything he stood for. Accompanied by his wife, Cleaver arrived at Fellowship House on Saturday after 5 p.m. Eldridge, I've been looking forward to this. I stuck out my hand. Me too, Cleaver replied. When Fred interrupted us with the announcement that dinner was about to be served, I realized I had not explained to Eldridge and his, and his party our plans for the evening. Listen, I hope you don't mind eating with 11 convicts, brother, I said. Hey man, you'll make me feel right at home, Cleaver said with a big grin. But then I remembered Tommy Tarrant's. How stupid of me. We had deliberately not told the inmates about Cleaver's visit in case of preferred anonymity. If it was hard for Cleaver to accept me, what about a Klansman who would bomb the houses of blacks? Wait here, I'll be right back, I said, and then bounded up the stairs two at a time. Tommy was in the kitchen, his tall gangly frame leaning over the stove. Hey, what's up, he said. Hey, Tommy, there's a new brother here for dinner with us. I wanted to meet them, to meet him. Sure, Chuck, what's his name? Eldridge Cleaver. Ah, he said weakly. Eldridge was gracious when I introduced the two men and briefly outlined Tommy's background. We both have a lot to live down, don't we? Eldridge said, gripping Tommy's hand and looking straight into his eyes. As I stared at the two men standing under the glow of the chandelier in the center hall, for a moment I was frozen in time. This could have been the first meeting between two of the original apostles, Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Matthew was a despised collaborator with the Roman Empire, Simon, a fervent Jewish nationalist, working for the violent overthrow of the Roman oppressors. Anywhere but in the company of Jesus, Simon would have thrust a knife into the hated Matthew. But the dinner was unforgettable. Several inmates, including Tommy, told of their experiences with Jesus Christ. Cleaver stared at Tommy, trying to look into his soul. Maxine, who had explained that she was a non-believing Jewess, this was Cleaver's wife, hardly touched her food. Sensing that the deeply spiritual talk might have been offensive to her, I walked around the table to where she was sitting. I suppose this may seem a little strange to you, a little crazy perhaps. She looked up. Well, if you are, then the whole world ought to be crazy like this. What a strange collection of people. Here were men who represented opposite poles, culturally, politically, socially. It would be unthinkable in the world's eyes that they could come together for anything. Yet on this night, they prayed together, they wept together, and they embraced, joined together by the power of the Spirit in a fraternity that transcends all others.
thought it might be good if, as we finish, if we just maybe just pray for our country a little bit, just for a few moments. I feel like we've obviously got the elections in a week and um, unity when we're so different, even in a small community, is only something that, as we've learned today, can happen through God's work in our hearts again and again and again, bringing a humility and a, a, a desire to, to actually preserve the bond that God has brought in us. So can we just spend a few moments doing that and then maybe George might, if you could lead us in a, in a song of response maybe. But it'd be great just to spend a few moments praying if we can along the lines of unity in this country. Let's go for it, one by one.